Welcome to the Novel Cohorts podcast. Uh, today we have Omar Saka, and uh, Omar and I worked together back when I was at Deloitte, and he's a, a partner at PwC. He's an expert in health economics and real-world evidence in general. And uh, one of the things I've always loved working with Omar is he's very innovative, creative, and uh, for us people here in the United States, he knows a lot more about Europe than we do in terms of how things work out there. Boy, um, I need to live up to these expectations now, Dan. So, so thanks for coming on to speak to us today. Um, so tell us a bit about your background, uh, you know, where you're working, what's your role? Sure. Thank you for the introduction. And it's, it's always a pleasure, even after a few years, uh, we both left Deloitte to still come across and have the chance to work together. And, we do work together. Perhaps we can uh, talk about these a little bit uh, during the podcast. Um, I studied medicine. Um, around the time I finished or was approaching the finishing line of medical studies um, was late 90s, early 2000s. The, the concept of blockbuster drugs were becoming a lot more of a reality. And several of the healthcare systems, interestingly starting from Australia, Canada particularly, even before the UK, they were adapting uh, um, practices to actually understand the value for money for, the, for such expensive drugs. Obviously, expensive drugs back 20 years ago meant something very different to what they mean today, um, as you very well know. However, they were expensive enough to, uh, to justify a systematic analysis. I was at that point the head of public health for the International Medical Students Organization, which was a United Nations recognized body. And I was uh, working with WHO with that title uh, in Copenhagen, WHO European Regional Office. So um, my uh, several of the people I've been working with um, had the, um, uh, the, the foresight to make, suggest career choices for myself, either a clinical pathway or some other options. Around that time, uh, an organization that we will talk a little bit about, the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence, NICE, was formed, and uh, several of my friends uh, happened to be recruited there. So together with the advice I received from colleagues, but also because of the developments around me, I decided to take a, a career in uh, economics of healthcare. Um, several different names are mentioned for this path in health technology assessment, uh, economic investigation, you know, more in the methods, cost-effectiveness analysis, so on and so forth. So um, I took that path, six, seven years in academia, um, uh, which I would like to talk a little bit about because that kind of uh, brings me to our topic of today, the real-world evidence. And then two years with the government in the UK, um, and then 10 years at Deloitte, one year at uh, an innovative pharmaceutical company, and immuno-oncology area particularly, and about a year in PwC. Great. So, you know, you're in uh, Europe, in Switzerland. That's right. I've uh, pretty much all my career was based in uh, Europe. Um, as a young medic, I had ventured into other territories and uh, back about 14, 15 years ago, I did have a, um, a few months uh, residency uh, in Boston, uh, learning some of the methods with uh, you know, great colleagues who actually also 
some of the founders of uh, the concepts we use in, in how we use real-world evidence in cost-effectiveness analysis on economic evaluation. But yes, most of my life, uh, definitely all of my professional life is spent uh, in Europe. Um, in uh, the, 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 the bigger European countries, mainly UK, Belgium, uh, eco economy-wise, more um, affluent ones, you could say, I guess. Now I'm in Switzerland. I lived in Copenhagen for a while. Did a part of my medical studies in Italy. Um, so, but I had the also chance to work with the healthcare systems of Poland, healthcare systems of Spain, the Scandinavian countries, Turkey, which is in the hinterland of Europe as well, as you know, um, and even um, around the Eastern European countries, some of the smaller ones like Croatia and Bulgaria. So, what do you think is very different from the US and Europe in terms of real world data? Um, I think you and I regularly debate about this. Of course, <laughs> when we're now recording our voices, it's uh, I need to, I need to think about some of these uh, social debates you and I had. But uh, I think there is one prominent difference that needs to be mentioned. I think, um, needless to say, the use of data and uh, the use of data for commercial purposes is um, taken to me a lot more liberal in the U.S. So the, uh, the availability um, of data, either to be inspired, not necessarily always for decision-making, but to be inspired about how um, disease pro diseases progress, how they provide outcomes, how patients actually end up in healthcare institutions. Um, perhaps because of the, the, the commercial or more heavily commercial nature of the, 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 the American healthcare system, um, such alleys of exploration are a lot more available in, in the US. Now, of course, on top of this, like everybody knows, there's the regulatory hurdles that were established a couple of years ago, particularly for Europe, uh, with the GPID regulation that has um, led to several lines of debate on uh, whether or not in Europe you're deploying real-world evidence sufficiently or whether we're creating too many uh, regulatory hurdles. I don't agree with those, but we're not going to discuss that. I think one of the major differences, on the other hand, is that Europe essentially takes a lot more of an uh, organized approach, methodological approach, uh, in building consensus, uh, in uh, understanding or averting risks around the use of real-world evidence prior to actually setting off uh, and deploying the data so liberally. Now, having said that, um, if you allow me, I will just go back very briefly to about six years I spent in academia uh, with my colleagues, uh, some of the top professors in the area of uh, health economics and in cerebrovascular medicine. Um, I was uh, the health economist in charge of the, the economic investigation of cerebrovascular diseases using uh, South London Stroke Register and European Registers of Stroke, E-R-O-S, EROS, as it reads now. Um, the, we did not call this um, real-world evidence back then. This is taking us back 14, 15, 16 odd years. Uh, we, we refer to this as data. And the reason why I'm giving this example is this data set has been and it still is hugely used. Um, some of the new therapies around oral anticoagulants, uh, the use of RTPA, 
were actually assessed using this very valuable population-based patient, patient registry, um, very restricted population, uh, I mean, a very a well-defined population area, very well-defined population coverage. You could even run uh, prevalence and incidence studies on the database. So even though Europe has been perhaps, if you evaluate it from a health technology assessment perspective, a lot more prescriptive, which according to some has uh, um, restricted the amount of investigation we could do with real-world evidence. Of course, the practice of using real-world evidence in our um, decision-making is not new. This particular example, the, the use of South London Stroke Registry actually led to the whole assessment of provision of cerebrovascular disease services all across England back in 2005. Uh, which led to huge amount of policy changes. One of the most influential secretaries of health, uh, Lord Darcy, was at the helm of this whole movement. And in a revision of evaluation of cerebrovascular services, cerebrovascular disease services across the UK in 2010, again, real-world evidence led the way to, to understand and to devise um, the successes of that policy and to further uh, the impact of uh, cerebrovascular national cerebrovascular policy, national stroke policy on patients' lives. So there are several examples like these in Europe, but I think when it comes to HTA, which we may talk about a little bit more, um, I think uh, we are a bit more prescriptive in Europe. So, so in Europe, um, I think Germany is the biggest market. Is that right? Um, right? What's happening nowadays in Germany? So, I mean, I think... Um, None of the HTA agencies could really um, stand against the wave of the penetration of real-world evidence in our, in our, you know, in our uh, assessment of new technologies, in our assessment of patient pathways. You know, we are either rules-bound or not. We are um, using real-world evidence uh, to understand the the effectiveness of interventions to understand the, the epidemiology of diseases, you know, naturally prevalence and incidence. We use this data in economic models. We use this data to try to understand the natural history of diseases, comorbidities. Um, we, are, we use real-world evidence to define the differences in current practices. Now, German healthcare system, as you know, and I'm sure your audiences are to a certain extent uh, acquainted with this information as well, German healthcare financing system, because of its historical makeup, because of its historical structure, uh, the Bismarckian, the, the, you know, the Iron Chancellor of Germany from the 19th uh, century, um, is, um, has always given more weight on the, the effectiveness, on the efficacy of treatments. And effectiveness of treatments, obviously, you would be able to determine mainly by referring to tech trials, clinical trials, etc. Now, um, but even the German healthcare system cannot resist the the change, the the the, the deployment of data, the, the accumulation of data, is fast-reaching. Europe itself um, has been investing alongside the pharma industry in a common program called Innovative Medicines Initiative, the IMI program into translational medicine and the use of, and the more effective use of uh, real world evidence, about $2 billion in each, uh, every year. So it's, it's a hugely uh, wide reaching program. So Germany is um, uh, reassessing its, uh, its very tactical 
uh, and risk-averse uh, evaluation of real-world evidence. We are involved, um, I must admit, and rather proudly, uh, one of my colleagues uh, you have met also, Dan, uh, and a, a team all around him, Philip Van Hovel, uh, we have been working with the lar largest uh, neurologist data set, um, largest neurologists network actually, which has a unified data set in Germany. And we are now in discussions with uh, ICRIC on what would be the methodological, first of all, what are the methodological upsides and downsides of such a wide ranging uh, neurology database, which is uh, initiated by a huge network of neurologists in Germany, and what would be the benefits of utilizing this data, not just only for the assessment of uh, new treatments, or perhaps the decisions on reimbursement of these new treatments, but also retrospectively evaluate the benefit of some of the older treatments or some of the older pathways. So I think um, there, is, there is legal background to this change as well. Therefore, the um, utilization, we, I think we will see a lot more of an open line of negotiation. We are in, this, uh, in these conversations with my colleagues, not me personally, unfortunately. Uh, my German is a little bit uh, um, rusty uh, from many, many years ago. But, uh, but uh, if we are involved, of course, several of my uh, you know, contemporary health economist colleagues, they're all involved in building such databases and deploying them for the benefit of patients. Awesome. Um, you're like my go-to health economist. So <laughs> how do we define the value of products and, and by understanding therapy areas, utilization patterns, drug compliance, how, how does that, how does that really work? So um, traditionally speaking, and I think this is going to build a very, very nice segue to real world evidence. So, um, when I say traditional, of course, you need to understand the institutional formation of the use of health economics or health technology assessment, as we refer to nowadays, is uh, is not that old. Of course, theories of it is in, in you know, utilitarian economics is with uh, um, uh, Kenneth Arrow of uh, Chicago School. So there's a whole. Um, um, equity related and, and the distribution of healthcare resources related research has been going on for decades naturally but the the, the deployment of this research the, the, the product of this research formally being deployed in decision making is relatively new uh, 20 say 25 years max but really uh, it has been taking over our decision processes very effectively definitely in the past 10 years so now what did we institutionally and organizationally do, we tried initially to understand, obviously, the ways to distribute our resources more effectively. Um, you know, there's a certain budget allocated to healthcare, everybody claims, and that budget needs to be allocated effectively across different diseases. Therefore, we attempted to develop um, utility metrics that could uh, equalize the measurement of outcomes across different therapy areas. We call these metrics with several different names. Quality of life metrics are, I guess, the most recognizable uh, nomenclature. Quality adjusted life use, of course, as a particular metric has been the topic of debate for uh, many, many years uh, with its negatives and positives. Now, when it comes to so the easy answer to your question is, 
we measure as in health economics the value of a treatment or the value of a therapy or the value of a clinical pathway and any new venture basically it doesn't have to be a drug or a medical device it could be a new way of uh, uh, providing surgery is measured by comparing the quality comparing the improvement of quality of life that it generates in the, the patients it's applied to versus the patients who actually receive you know standard of care or all the way of managing these patients. Now, quality adjusted life years have been, um, um, without sounding too politically incorrect, have been insufficient uh, in the face of huge developments. I will say particularly in the area of oncology, because the, the, the improvement of quality of life isn't the only thing that we uh, provide to patients. Uh, the, the improvement in their lifetime is not the only thing that we provide to patients. You know, safety metrics, improvement of uh, their overall activities of daily living. But a lot of proxy metrics are metrics we also need to understand how successful uh, the very new uh, therapies in oncology and, and some of the similar areas have been too. Therefore, health economics uh, discipline is not, has been evolving in exploration of other metrics to define that value recently. And the, the use of real world evidence have been particularly important in facilitating that development. And one very prominent example, of course, is in the area of, okay, perhaps we develop such standardized metrics like quality adjusted life years, but quality adjusted life years do not necessarily allow us to compare diseases with one another, topic of another uh, session with you perhaps, but just suffice it to say that they don't uh, do it. And also quality adjusted life years in the measurements uh, have um, several simplifications and they do not necessarily uh, bring forth the manifestation of um, the, the, the outcomes in diseases to its sufficient degree, in particular diseases that are seen to be more uh, quality of life or, or lifestyle diseases like uh, atopic dermatitis, narcolepsy, where the payers do not understand the severe trouble the patients go through and the benefit of the treatments for these diseases for them. So what we do is we develop metrics and measures to understand patients' complaints. And we call this set of metrics as patient-reported outcomes. Now, the, the, the deployment of real-world evidence has been significant in this area, either retrospectively or prospectively. Could we define cohorts of patients which... Uh, could we then extract their complaints accurately in a standardized form so that we can understand actually what's the impact of a certain disease on their um, on their on the on the progression or continuation of their lives on their um, on their um, um, wellness altogether? Now, from this, from these type uh, type of metrics, we of course expand to a much wider uh, use of uh, real world evidence, particularly again in measuring the resource consumption of patients when they're actually um, receiving new therapies um, in a hospital setting or a clinical setting or even at their own home because clinical trials are, of course are restrictive they uh, they are very prescriptive in how they measure and how they even um, um, allocate uh, resources to patients there are very stringent rules on how a patient should see a physician how many times their tests should be done, versus, uh, et cetera. But as with the uh, world evidence on the economy side, uh, we would be able to understand the value of either the increase in expenditure of a, uh, on a patient 
who's receiving a new therapy, or perhaps the savings that could be achieved as the, the condition of the patient improves, as the patient manages to go back to work more regularly, as the, the patient uh, achieves the, the activities of daily living with more success. So, you know, these kinds of, and, and the pressure on the healthcare system, not just the German healthcare system, but uh, you know, the UK healthcare system too, is recognizing the fact that, first of all, clinical trials do not provide sufficient data from that perspective. Second of all, it's, it's unavoidable that we're gonna to need to follow these patients' uh, progression in order to ascertain the value that we, we had measured with efficacy. And the, we, it's not a question of whether real-world evidence should be deployed or could be deployed. It's more like how should it be deployed so that we ensure that the inherent biases that could exist in such data sets would be overcome. So, so you know, most historical real-world data has gone against claims data or administrative data sets of some sort. Um, a lot of what you're describing sounds like quality of life and patient-reported type data. Um, can you talk about advanced data, the things that people are just now starting to get a hold of to do these yeah, steps? What do they need? What kind of data and how is it working? Or how could it work? Um, very good, uh, very good point. Um, now, the, I have to say, if you're talking about the European context, um, the so first of all, maybe let's start from the beginning. Uh, I, in my previous answer, I attempted to give you uh, an idea on the fundamental use of real-world evidence to enhance the value of uh, innovative treatments. Now, um, of course, um, the huge amount of investment made on innovative uh, medicines initiative, the IMI program, doesn't just you know stay within this realm of investment. So. Um, they expand to uh, beyond regional databases, beyond primary care, beyond hospital-based databases. They try to design disease-specific cohorts, particularly for rare diseases and, you know, um, less regularly uh, encountered uh, problems. Population cohorts are built. Biobanks are obviously uh, more regularly used. Disease registries, they were solitary examples. Now they're more integrated into, the, um, into this, uh, the broad range of data sources. However, beyond that, recently I had the chance to complete a project uh, for, which will be published very soon. And I would be happy to actually, if, if you think it would be helpful, I'd be happy to uh, spend another 10, 15 minutes discussing the outcomes of that study with you. We looked at the deployment of uh, artificial intelligence on detecting um, sources of uh, efficacy, sources of effectiveness, uh, particularly when uh, very rare diseases and the treatments for very rare diseases are going to be needed. Uh, European investment in that area has been, uh, uh, from what we can determine, has been uh, significantly less than the investment made in this in such ventures in the US and even in other um, countries like China, for example. Therefore, um, the, 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 the networks and the data custodians are getting together, particularly academically and particularly with European Union funding, uh, to develop, use, test, and you know, facilitate the sharing of such practices. Um, 
the the reason why I can't get into more details because the report is about to be published, and I would love to spend more time with you on this particular aspect. Of course, you and I talk, you know, beyond the artificial intelligence, you and I talk about, um, you know, voice recognition technologies uh, to deploy in cognitive, in patients with cognitive uh, impairment. Uh, you and I again talk about um, uh, in sleep-impaired in sleep impaired patients, the use of uh, wearable technologies on determining the difference between, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the the sleep impairment that causes issues and sleep impairment that is more lifestyle bound. Um, the, however, could I tell you that there is a systematic uh, and brave use of such, um, you know, more futuristic technologies in reimbursement or in the, the determining the value of uh, new drugs in Europe? I think this is still a bit of a development case. Again, you and I, if you recall, two years ago, we worked on a very rare uh, disease, a gastrointestinal disease, uh, perianal fistulas. And in the deployment of that disease, we, um, uh, you know, we anticipated the, the setting up of um, quite significant home-based patient follow-up procedures so that if the perianal fistula treatment was not to be effective, uh, immediate uh, blips and uh, notices could be raised so that the, the discomfort of patient could be immediately recorded. Uh, but um, as you also know, when it came to payer conversations, some of these were, um, were uh, a little bit uh, beyond the, uh, the, 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 the schedule of implementation yet. But uh, the, the frequency of these conversations are increasing, which is ho uh, hopeful from our perspective. Great. And, um, you know, you're talking a bit about rare diseases and genetic disorders. And I think a lot of therapies are starting to target these because of gene therapy. Um, what do you think is changing in terms of these rare diseases? What kinds of capabilities are being put together to support them? Um, I think methodologically, um, one of the projects that was also funded by IMI has been very interesting in that particular area. Um, the, you know, we, we are recognizing more and more that the old fashioned ways of recruiting patients for um, um, studies is um, not only um, reducing the speed with which we can carry out these studies, but it's also actually um, extending the, the, the length of the studies beyond the, 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 the period that uh, should be required. So what's happening in this field? Certainly, again, the, this, this whole uh, movement started more in the US, but the, we see uh, a lot more of um, uh, adherence of early access programs in Europe, meaning uh, the regulators, the HD agencies realize that because of the speed of research in rare diseases is slow, when a new drug as actually would be available, then you know, the, 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 it should be, the, the use of this drug should be facilitated by regulated means um, to patients which may not have been captured for clinical trials. So the, the rise of early access programs is certainly one of the, the most interesting developments in the reimbursement space and something that is definitely, especially now that we're on the brink of very expensive cell engine therapies, is going to be one of the gate, uh, door openers. Now, beyond that, 
Um, I have been partnering with a, a company called My Tomorrows, a very, very innovative company. Uh, you may have also come across with them, uh, funded uh, by Venture Capital. Now, uh, these folks in Holland, they have developed um, a, a super interesting um, uh, um, um, decision pathways to define patients with rare diseases from the way that they would be seeking information in the, in the, on the internet. Because some of the times the, the patients suffering from rare disorders, they don't even come across uh, with the right physicians for their uh, problems to be diagnosed accurately. So they don't go to the specialized agencies. But now with the deployment of technology uh, within the realm of uh, GP, uh, GDPR, obviously, we can recognize these patients. We can provide them options to join clinical trials, or if that doesn't work, we could rapidly enroll them if, in some of these uh, early access programs. And of course, the, um, within the early access programs, from a real world evidence perspective, one of the things that prospectively is hugely beneficial is by deploying these early access programs, we also uh, start the venture into real world evidence much more earlier. We don't need to wait for long and long lasting, uh, um, you know, uh, arduous and complicated negotiation processes on what the price level should be, what should be the net price, what should be the list price, what would be the, uh, the impact of listing a price in England for um, uh, reference pricing in other countries, so on and so forth. So the the, the fact that we can that the payers recognize the rise of therapies, the speed with which these therapies are actually going through clinical trials, and the, the, the need to deploy these therapies rapidly with patients is also helping the, uh, the, uh, the, the collection of the world evidence. And also, eventually, of course, it's helping us to separate uh, wheat from chaff, as you could say. Of course, if some of these therapies do not work, we should, as payers, should be also able to uh, put an end to it. And the clinicians, are, you know, should that be in, be in a position to almost in a real life manner to be able to choose alternatives for their patients, which provides which provide better efficacy and effectiveness. So uh, from the rare diseases, I think, and, and you know, again, that we are leaving so many details out in this conversation. Uh, we're not talking about personalized care. We're not talking about the the practices of value based care, which again, you and I have spent quite a bit of our uh, professional time investigating. But if you were to just talk about the main skeleton of uh, rare diseases, I think that's the situation. Well, thanks. That's pretty interesting. Um, you know, one of the things we've talked about is that you know, we're on a podcast now. Everybody's home. Tele telehealth seems to be booming all of a sudden because there's not a lot of alternatives for people who can't get in to see a physician. Um, that must be changing how real world evidence and how pharmaceutical companies are looking at their clinical trials. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts on all that? Um, this is a, this is a, this is a mind blowing area uh, in my opinion. Um, sadly, I must add, um, um, apart from the very acute interventions that were developed in Europe, we have, we are yet to see mainstream uh, accepted deployment of telemedicine. Of course, the reason why this topic came about very acutely, as we all know, all of your listeners are well aware, aware is, the, is the COVID-19 shock that we have uh, received in our lives in the past six months. The, uh, with this shock, uh, 
you know, we talked about the first wave. We tried to suppress that first wave of patients suffering from COVID-19 from hitting the hospitals all at once, therefore uh, depriving the, 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 the limited resources that these hospitals have to utilize on these patients. So we managed it to a certain extent in Europe, for sure. Um, there are su success stories and less, success, less, less successful cases, but nevertheless, we did manage that first wave. However, patient, the, the occupancy rate in some of the hospitals dropped down to 15, 20% levels. Now, no hospital 15, 20% can, uh, of occupancy could survive. But of course, if we are reducing the occupancy rate of hospitals to those levels, two questions emerge. Number one, um, that means we are pushing out several uh, elective cases. Uh, we are postponing them, which you know we have research is yet to emerge. Oxford University, the group in Oxford University is doing investigation into this area to understand that secondary impact of COVID-19. But these elective procedures, patients who need it urgent cardiovascular surgery, for example, what has the impact of them, we do not know. And of course, more, uh, perhaps more, um, um, on a more long-term level, the patients who suffer from chronic diseases who may experience side effects or they may experience a relapse of their symptoms, they have also been deprived of a regular contact with their physicians. Now, telehealth is the one replacement uh, that would change this uh, picture. Regulation has been passed uh, in the US. Also, there's been examples in Europe. Um, I know for a fact in Belgium, I worked with some of the physicians there. Is, um, of course, uh, tele uh, to consultations, even the, um, the, you know, the use of mobile phones to uh, determine dermatological symptoms and, and their severity has even been deployed. Formally, to a certain extent, informally to another extent. However, the I, I, in my, and this is going to be anecdotal, I must say, because obviously as a part of my job, I'm in contact with both the pharmaceutical industry and the care providers. The, the implementation of durable solutions is yet to be discussed. I don't think the industry has fully grasped, grasped the potential that um, telemedicine provides to them. Um, I have been talking to colleagues in chronic care, and they have already been complaining of the reduction in um, uh, prescription, refilled prescriptions, you know, patients not necessarily coming to, elderly patients particularly, trying to minimize their contact with uh, the outside world, not getting their prescriptions filled, lowering their dosages to enable the drugs that uh, to last longer. So the 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 there's a huge amount of investigation that's needed here. If telemedicine, if we can take that opportunity, of course, telemedicine directly uh, would impact on the uh, our understanding on how we manage patients. Telemedicine allows us to collect data more quickly, more readily, especially if we can connect the telemedicine systems to our uh, more um, conventional data collection methods, if we can manage it. Again, in the continuum of value-based care, this is something we've been anticipating for many years because communication methods allows us now to do this. But uh, I personally, as a professional serving in the area of market access, health economics, I am yet to see uh, emerging models that will be considered in, um, um, in economic analysis that will descend from the use of telemedicine. One maybe interesting example, I can share with you. 
um, an oncology uh, intervention I'm working on recently. They wanted to underline the value they generate because uh, this particular drug doesn't need to be administered as regularly as the competitor drug. And naturally, if the patients do not have to attend, do not have to come to the clinic very often, and if their uh, regular problems could be managed via telehealth, uh, that could reduce their risk of um, um, you know, uh, getting in touch with potential patients that suffer from COVID-19. Therefore, that reduces their risk of infection. And we're now investigating whether or not we could actually make this a part of the overall economic investigation uh, of the therapy. So there are very clear uses. Tangible cases are yet to emerge, but there's definitely uh, thinking uh, on how telemedicine and tele the, 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 the enablement it will create uh, will make its way to value assessment of new therapies. I, mean, I think my hope in all the telehealth is that it's, there's always this lowest, uh, less rich data you get and you start with claims data. Then you maybe go up to EHR data where someone's actually entering what clinically was evaluated by the physician. Then you get to physician notes where that's what the physician wrote down in great narrative form, off you cut and paste. Um, but if we start getting to real telemedicine and, and there's a way to extract the full richness of the encounter with video, with audio, with the full text of what the patient actually said and the clinician actually said to them, um, you know, it might not first be specifically useful in health economics, but um, I have to imagine it'll answer a lot of the questions we often hear about, well, I just don't know where the real impact is on quality of life. We don't have that data. It's not stored in any record. Um, so I think I'm hopeful that the ethics gets worked out so that that rich information can be used in a way that's productive to help patients and productive to help build better products. Um, but who knows? I think it's going to be complicated because, you know, tapping into I, people's I, conversations may be really hard. <laughs> I, I, you know, in defense of the payers landscape, I would like to say one thing here. Um, in my several conversations with colleagues in the industry, what I tried to underline was, uh, you know, Telemedicine is not a technology. It's not just a computer. It's not just being able to talk to your physician. Telemedicine is, you know, um, transferring data between physicians, transferring data between institutions. Telemedicine is being able to readily evaluate, you know, blood test results. It's being able to um, understand the, the complaints of patients readily. So basically, telemedicine is anything that speeds up the interaction between the patient and the care provider. Now, I have to say for my colleagues in the industry, um, the, the weight is a little bit on their shoulders to, um, first of all, I mean, they have obviously huge amounts of information on the therapy areas that they work with. They do understand patient pathways. They do understand the, the shortcomings on the patient pathways, sometimes with, because of the um, efficacy effectiveness, but mostly because the healthcare systems are not geared up to you know, deliver um, you know, the best result for each patient and each patient's problem. Therefore, I think the burden is a little bit with the industry to define the clusters of health technology that could be deployed on the patient pathway, the potential ethical problems that can emerge, data biases, but beyond data biases, um, some obviously 
uh, informal practices that could also formulate around these practices, the risk, risky behavior that could be instigated, and present pilot-based suggestions to the payers. I think payers are willing to evaluate these options, but I, I believe that they are not receiving sufficient number of um, um, tangible suggestions that are, that, have been, that are being presented to them. I think the, the industry has a bit more of a homework to do here. Yeah, well, things may have gotten a bit kicked forward, but it'll still take a while. You know, we, we know the direction I think it's headed. Um, think the direction is headed, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, thanks a lot for taking the time with us. Um, you know, maybe the, the last question I'd, I'd maybe end with with you is sort of what are your thoughts on the big picture? You know, like where, where do you think advanced real-world data, advanced real-world evidence will have the big impact in the future? What, why are you in this game <laughs> trying to make this work? I mean, frankly speaking, I think we still, uh, I, I think the main problem is value-based care. I think the main problem is it's not the value of a pill tied to a quality adjusted life here, or it's not the value of a, a infusion for a cancer patient, but it's the, the value that we built within the healthcare system to, to uh, you know, lessen the pain of patients. I think for me, the biggest picture is, and also maybe the, the most difficult aspect of, um, change is in the more established medical practices. I think the, the, the answer is ventures like ITROM, uh, initiated by monitors, Michael Porter, as you know, trying to determine uh, metrics of value, not just related to a drug, not just related to a treatment modality, but related to the healthcare system, being able to understand readily and rapidly what are the, the main reasons why patients fall out of the healthcare system or they are not complying with their treatments or they're not getting the, 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 the effectiveness nowhere near as close to the efficacy results that the, the, the trials publish. The value-based care can only be actualized, and that's the big game for me, if we um, you know, stop talking about innovation in the sense that a new drug could generate for a patient, but start talking about what are the gaps in care provision across the framework. And I think when um, the, the necessary um, the set of contractual agreements are made that the stakeholders you know, take responsibility in, uh, in all of the, the continuum of care. I think that's the biggest problem. You and I, I think our friendship depends on uh, to a certain extent our intellectual endeavors, but also this particular passion that I know you also share on converting healthcare systems into one entity rather than hospitals here, clinics here, patients here, physicians here, drugs here, type of a venture. I, um, I mean, um, we could talk for hours about this. Um, there's uh, book <laughs> chapters I've written about this, which I'd be more than happy to share uh, with, uh, with any of your audiences who'd be interested. But I think the, the focus should be on the uh, methodological aspects of value-based care and how new bits actually improve on our understanding of value-based care. Great. I think that's a good place to leave it off. You know, it all, it all boils down to truly delivering full value. So thanks and so thank much, you Omar. For, uh, thank you for creating the audience and creating the platform for such conversations. I, um, I'm looking forward to many years of conversations. Of course, if your audiences had any questions, do pass them on. Uh, I'd be happy sure. to see if I can 
yeah, and, and make you know, an attempt. I'm sure, we'll be working <laughs> long past like these gray hairs that are growing. <laughs> so we'll, we'll be at this years from now. Thanks so much, Omar. Thanks very much. Cheers. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Bye.